Do I need to put this one on as well? I'm really wired up here. I'm happy to put on a third mic if that's what's needed. <laughs> well, I've got room for it on my shirt. It's great to be with you. Uh, enjoy these opportunities to come and speak with you at EU. And uh, we're going to be looking at the topic of death this week and next. This week, the death of death. And uh, next week, uh, five or six myths about death. And this is not some evil scheme to uh, take you who are already a bit stressed about exams and, uh, and depress you even more by talking about an even worse subject. In fact, I hope it's not going to be depressing at all. In fact, I hope that you come away from this week and next week with a sense of renewed confidence and hope. And if you can have hope in the face of death, well, then exams are really no worries at all, are they? But uh, we're going to be talking about death. Death is a topic we need to talk about carefully as I was reminded when I heard about the guy who went away on holidays and asked his next-door neighbour to look after his cat while he was away. Three days into his holiday, he gets a phone call from his neighbour. The neighbour says, Jack, the cat's dead. And the guy loves his cat. He said, you just can't come out and just tell me like that. It's just, I just can't cope. It's so brutal. It's so hard. You're just, just dead. I mean, I'm in shock. I'm grief. I'm just struck by grief at the thought my cat has died. And the guy says, oh, sorry. Well, what should I have said? So will you break it to me gently? You ring me and you say, look, Jack, the cat's stuck on the roof and we can't get it down. Next day you ring me again. You say, the cat's stuck on the roof. It's looking really bad. We still can't get it down. I'm really worried about it. The third day you ring me and say, look, we've got it. Sad to say that the cat did die. So, okay, I remember that. Jack comes back from holidays. Next year, Jack goes away on holidays again. Three days into his holiday, he gets a phone call from his neighbour. Jack, your mother's stuck on the roof. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a minister and part of the, my job is to take funerals and um, earlier this year I took a funeral for my father's secretary she was an energetic, lively, funny person had a terrific relationship with her husband she was loved by her work colleagues and um, lived a very full and happy life until she had a um, it all came to an end suddenly when she died of a brain hemorrhage a week before her 50th birthday. And I remember her husband standing up at the front of the church giving his eulogy to his wife and uh, telling us everything he loved about her and we laughed with him as he told us about the funny things that she'd done and spoke of his great love for her. And I looked at this man as he was speaking and I thought, this guy's all at sea. This guy has lost so much and he just is struggling to come to terms with it. And that's understandable because death is the great undoer. Perhaps you've, uh, you've lost someone close to you and you know what it's like. I don't want to exploit those painful memories. But it is true that death robs us of so much. When I was 15, a classmate of mine died of leukaemia. And back then, I just was absolutely petrified of death. I just saw it as this looming blackness that uh, I knew would get me. It had taken him. I knew one day it would get me too. And I was petrified. And I thought then that death makes a mockery of life. It can hit you when you're young, when you've uh, still got so much to live for, you haven't yet had a chance to live out your potential, or it can hit you when you're old, and then everything you've learned and all those relationships you've developed over many years just disappears into nothing. It hits you when you've led a decent life or when you've been a complete ratbag. A wise man from ancient Israel summed it up this way. Looking at the world around him, he sees that everybody dies, and he... To him it just doesn't seem to make any sense at all. And so he writes in Ecclesiastes 9, 
All this I lay to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it's love or hate, one does not know. Everything that confronts them is vanity, that is, is emptiness, since the same fate comes to all, to the righteous and to the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to those who sacrifice and those who do not sacrifice, as are the good, so are the sinners. Those who swear are like those who shun an oath. This is an evil in all that happens under the sun, that the same fate comes to everyone. Now this guy wants to say that life is positive, and yet he also sees that death is the final undoing of everything in this life. Later on he says, The living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no more reward, and even the memory of them is lost. Their love and their hate and their envy have all perished. You may think that's a strange thing to be in the Bible, but it's not strange. Here is a man of faith who believes in God, just looking at the world as he sees it. As he sees it, and what he sees is that everyone dies, and to him that makes a mockery of life. Everything he says is temporary. You you lead a decent life, you die and it's gone. You live a totally selfish life, the same thing happens to you. All your love, your hate, your envy, it all perishes. He says, even the memory of the living is lost. And that is true, actually. Unless you happen to be one of those very, very few famous people, even your memory will disappear. And let me test you on this to prove it. How many of you can remember the names, even the first names, of all your great-grandparents? I'd be very surprised if uh, most of us could name even their first names. Yet in some way they are so close to us, and yet we know hardly anything about them at all. And the same will be true of your great-grandchildren. They will, most of them, not even know your first name. Death is the great undoer. It takes away life, it takes away hopes, it takes away dreams, it takes away everything that we are. And you get a sense of that after the death of Jesus in that passage that we just had read. Uh, The two disciples of Jesus are walking along that road. In verse 17 of Luke 24, it tells us they are sad. Why are they sad? Well, because death has shattered their hopes. Specifically, the death of Jesus of Nazareth. As they explain to the stranger they meet as they're walking along, he was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. And our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was to be the one to redeem Israel. They're sad because their dreams have been shattered. They had pinned their hopes on Jesus. They had come to believe that he was the one that was going to set them free. And now, well, it would be a hollow joke if it wasn't just so devastating because he's dead. And all their hopes and their dreams have been shattered along with his death. So I'm reminded of a line from a very old James Taylor song, which I heard again just this last week on The Simpsons, actually. Uh, the line goes like this. Sweet dreams, he wrote, James Taylor wrote this song when a close friend of his died, and the line goes, sweet dreams and flying machines in pieces on the ground. And you get that sense that these two people are experiencing that. Death is the great undoer. It smashes life, it smashes hopes, it smashes dreams. But you know, sometimes even in the darkest blackness, a spark of light appears, and as these two disciples keep talking with a stranger, as they're walking along to the village of Emmaus, 
he starts to talk to them about what has happened and he starts to open the scriptures to them and explain them to him, uh, explain the, the scriptures to them and their hearts start to beat more quickly. They were enjoying listening to him and when he looked like he was going to go on further they say, no, stay with us and he, he, they invited him to share a meal with them, he broke the bread and when he broke the bread they recognised who it was and the blackness of their shattered dreams is suddenly turned to hope as they realised that the rumour that the women had told them is true, that Jesus is alive. You can feel their joy as they say in verse 28, word on our hearts burning within us while he was talking to us on the road, while he was opening the scriptures to us. That same hour they got up and returned to Jerusalem and they found the eleven and their companions gathered together. They were saying, the Lord has risen indeed and he has appeared to Simon. And then they told them what had happened on the road and how he had been made known to them in the breaking of the bread. Against all their expectations, on that first Easter day, the, con- the disciples confronted the fact that the Jesus, Jesus who had been so brutally put to death on a Roman cross on a Friday was now alive on the Sunday. You can tell that they were not expecting that. Here and elsewhere, it's clear they were not expecting that. In fact, they were slow to accept it until the evidence before them was just absolutely undeniable. And they were had to face the key historical fact that Jesus was, Jesus was no longer dead. And we're not talking here about a near-death experience where the heart stops and the person, as it were, gets, gets pulled back from death. And, and I think we've got fairly well-documented cases of that actually happening, where someone dies and then just before they slip into death they somehow get pulled back from it. But that's not the way the, death of, the resurrection of Jesus is described at all. His death and resurrection is described quite differently. He went into death and rather than getting pulled back from it, he went through it and came out the other side into a totally different order of existence. Now what that meant for those first disciples was hope. What it means for us is hope. If I could ask you to turn in your Bibles, if you've got them there, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting at verse 13. I want to talk about uh, three points from this, chap- from this particular passage. The reason for hope already started talking about the shape of hope and then thirdly the encouragement of hope. 1 Thessalonians 4. I'll read from verse 13 to 18. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who have died, so that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus... God will bring with him those who have died. For this we declare to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will by no means precede those who have died. For the Lord himself, with a cry of command, with the archangel's call and with the sound of God's trumpet, will descend from heaven and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up in the clouds together with them to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Have a look again at verse 14. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have died. Look at the structure of that sentence. And we've got Jesus died and rose again. Those who have died... God will bring with him. The parallel in the sentence emphasises that we share the same experience 
with Christ. He died and rose again. We die, we will rise again if we are in Christ by faith. And that's what that little expression through Jesus means in that, in that uh, sentence. Or we go to uh, another passage where Paul talks about this, 1 Corinthians 15 verse 20. Paul uses there an agricultural metaphor. He says, but in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have died. Now, I don't know a thing about farming. I basically know that you put things in the ground and you get some stuff out of it later on, a bit more than you put in, hopefully. And uh, that is the harvest. And then the harvest, some things ripen before the other bits. And in ancient Israel, the bits that ripen first were called the first fruits, and they'd be offered to God and uh, dedicated to God, representing the whole harvest. And here Paul says that Christ's resurrection is like the first resurrection in a whole crop of resurrections. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 23. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, and then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Now it's true that at this stage, Christ's resurrection is a freakish, one-off event. But the time is coming when it won't be unusual at all. In fact, there will be resurrection happening everywhere as the, those who have believed in Christ are raised. And the whole Christian hope in the face of death depends on the fact that Jesus himself has been raised. I don't know if you've ever been to a typical Aussie funeral, but the ones I've been to, there's always this vague hope expressed that the person is alive somehow, some way. Um, and if you ask the people who are expressing this hope exactly why they were you know, so confident that the person was alive somehow, uh, they wouldn't be able to tell you. That basically, to be perfectly frank, their, their hope that this person is still alive is based on wishful thinking and sentimentality. But the Christian hope is not based on sentimentality. It's not based on wishful thinking. Alone of all the religions I know of, it is a hope that is based on solid historical facts and has historical evidence to support it. And that's what I'm after. If I'm going to face, as I will, the, uh, the reality of death, I want a hope that is certain, not one that is based on wishful thinking. If I'm going to climb Mount Everest, which is something I almost certainly never do, but if I was going to climb Mount Everest, I'd want to go with a guy who has been there before. So I'd be certain of getting to the top because this guy has, can take me there, he's been there before. Now, I may never climb Mount Everest, but I will face death. And if I'm going to face death, I want to face it with someone who has done, gone through it before, who has beaten death, and where there is genuine evidence to support that, uh, that confidence that I have in him. And so I'm going to turn to Jesus, I'm going to stay in Jesus, because he is the only one who has been uh, into death and out the other side. So the reason for hope that we have in the face of death is because Christ has already beaten death himself in his resurrection. Secondly, I want to talk about the shape of hope. What does this hope look like after death? The cartoon version of life after death involves clouds, wings and harps. And I don't know about you, maybe I just need to under, learn to appreciate the finer points of harp music a bit more, but I cannot think of anything more boring than spending the rest of eternity playing the harp. <laughs> I've got no idea... No idea where that picture of, of life after death comes from. It doesn't come from the Bible. But uh, perhaps more uh, closer to home, if someone, if you'd asked me some time ago why I had confidence in the face of death, I would have said something like, well, I, I'm confident that when I die, I'll go to heaven. When I, when I die, I'll go to heaven. 
And many of us, I think, have this view of the body rotting away in the grave, or maybe you know, going up in smoke from the uh, crematorium chimney, and, uh, and the soul going on to, uh, to live with God in heaven. That is not a Christian view of death, of, of life after death. It's not a Christian view. It owes a lot more to Plato than it does to Jesus. And I think we need to rethink our view of life after death, if that's our, what our opinion is. A Christian view of life after death centres on two things. It centres, first of all, on the return of Jesus and also on the resurrection of the body. See, life after death is it's not going to be that we're a whole lot of disembodied souls floating around, but we will have bodies, spiritual bodies, that have some continuity with our present physical bodies. Uh, they'll be changed, they'll be glorified, uh, the grey hairs will be gone, the pimples will be gone, no doubt, but they will still be physical, they will still be bodies. We will not be floating on clouds with wings and hearts, but we'll be living with our new bodies in a new creation, a new heavens and a new earth. And I take it, like our bodies have some sort of continuity, um, there will be some sort of continuity between this creation and the, and the new heavens and the new earth. Again, it will be transformed, it will be glorified, but I know what it won't be is it won't be something insipid and ethereal. It will be solid and real like this creation, although perhaps even more so. You might say, I can't imagine that. That is so far beyond my experience that I can't possibly imagine what that would be like. And I suppose, of course, it's hard for us to imagine. It is something so totally beyond our experience. But although we've never experienced before, it, never experienced it doesn't mean it's not real. Now, you have experienced yourselves, each one of you, a very different form of existence than this one that you're experiencing right now. What I mean is, before you were born, you experienced nine months of life in your mother's womb, very different form of experience from what you're experiencing now. And I want you to imagine you have two twins in the womb, and I want you to imagine that they, their brains were sufficiently developed that they were able to wonder and speculate. And I want you to imagine that somehow they're able to talk with one another. I reckon they'd spend a lot of time speculating about whether there is life after birth. They'd pick up some inklings that there's something else out there. They'd, they'd think, well, there's, there's some, you know, we get some hints. But then they'd think, I can't possibly imagine what it would be like. I can't, they couldn't imagine, you know, after all life in the womb was all they knew, they'd say, I can't imagine what it would be like. I can't even imagine how we could survive out there without this somber life cord and without this nice sort of uh, soft, warm, um, watery sack that we're living in here. I just couldn't imagine life without that. Well, when it comes to life beyond death, I think we're a bit in the same situation. It's something beyond our experience, but because it's beyond our experience, doesn't mean it's not real. The second issue about the, under this uh, topic of the shape of the hope is the question of when is this all going to happen? It's clear from this 1 Thessalonians 4 passage that all of this is going to happen when Jesus returns. Look at verses 16 and 17. For the Lord himself, with a cry of command, with the archangels calling, with the sound of God's trumpet, will descend from heaven, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up in the clouds together with them to meet the Lord in the air. 
and so we will be with the Lord forever. According to what Paul says here, it's not a matter of, matter of uh, going to heaven when you die. A more biblical way of expressing it is you will be raised when Christ returns. That is, when Jesus moves from the place where God is and once again comes directly and visibly into human experience. And you see what this does? What this does is it moves the return of Jesus from being the forgotten doctrine of Christian faith to being absolutely central to our hope because we will be raised when he returns. Now, incidentally, when, when the Bible talks about death from the person who is about to go through it themselves from the per- perspective of the person who is dying, it talks about it as being instantaneous. They die and then suddenly they're in the presence of the Lord. It's like uh, they're not aware of any waiting at all. They die and the next moment they're conscious of, they're with Christ. It's, I imagine something pretty much like sleep in that they are suddenly at that time when Christ has returned and their bodies are raised. Okay, finally, the encouragement of hope. Just briefly, the reason that Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4 mentions this stuff about the, the resurrection of the dead, it's not just to enlighten their minds, it's also to give hope to their souls. He says, he's writing this, so that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. And at the end of verse 18, you can see the same concern again there. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, if ever you're sat with someone who is grieving, you will know that is not a time for empty words. It's not a time for sentimentality and wishful thinking. There's no comfort in that at all, but there is comfort in truth. There's power in truth. There's hope in truth. And that's what Paul has done here. He's laid out this truth about the resurrection of Christ and what that means for us to give us hope. Now, just a word about grief from this passage. Grief is healthy. Grief is normal. And I'll say grief is unavoidable. In Philippians 2, Paul's talking about a friend of his, Epaphroditus, who got so sick he almost died. died. And Paul says, But God has mercy on him, and not only on him but also on me, so that I would not have one sorrow after another. Paul is uh, not telling us to be some sort of emotion-free zone when it comes to death. There is still sorrow. There's the sorrow of separation. There's the hole that the the person's lost that that leaves in your life. Um, There's the things you never got to do together you may have wanted to do together and, and the plans that have changed and all that stuff. The contrast that Paul's making is not between no grief and grief, or between a little bit of grief and a lot of grief. The contrast he's drawing here is between grief with hope and grief without hope. When someone we love dies, there will be grief, and that's okay. The point is, if they're in Christ, it will be a grief with hope, and that makes all the difference. There is great encouragement in that. I just want to end on a personal note. Um, yeah, just, as this, uh, just to finally wrap up this subject. Just after Easter, my wife's brother came down from the country where he was living to, uh, to Sydney for various tests on a growth in his abdomen. In May, we got the news that it was melanoma. He died early last month. He was 41 years old. He was married uh, with three young children, four, seven, and ten. 
went to the crematorium uh, at the time of his funeral and looked at him lying there in the coffin and I was confronted with the stark, brutal reality of death. There is nothing beautiful about death. This man's death ended a great marriage, ripped a family apart, it deprived three young kids of their father, left a hole in a mother's heart, and it's deprived many people, including myself, of a wacky, fun, great friend. Death is destructive, it is tragic, it causes deep pain. Death is the great undoer. But for those of us who, are, who belong to Christ by faith, as my brother-in-law did, death is not the final word. Death itself will be undone. As the uh, 17th century poet John Donne wrote, Death, be not proud, though some have called thee mighty and dreadful, for thou art not so. For those whom thou thinkst thou dost overthrow, die not, poor death, nor yet canst thou kill me. One short sleep past, we wake eternally, and death shall be no more. Death, thou shalt die. And in writing that, John Donne is just echoing the words in the Bible itself when it says, Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? If you are in Christ, be assured that death is not the final word for you. Death, the great undoer, itself will be undone. Death will die. Will you join me in just a moment's prayer? Heavenly Father, we pray that you would enlighten the eyes of our hearts so that we may know the hope to which you have called us, the riches of your glorious inheritance among the saints and your immeasurably great power for us who believe, that same power that you put to work in Christ when you raised him from the dead and seated him at your right hand in the heavenly places. Amen.